Hello friends and welcome back to It's All Relative, the show that explores life's issues through a generational lens, helping us understand how we are evolving as consumers, workers and citizens. Each episode I shall be tackling a juicy question that I want answered by interviewing experts, voices and practitioners along the way to unravel the complex answer. Today we are discussing the millennials' relationship with the internet. Yes, we were the first generation to mature online, but how has it shaped our sense of identity, values and behaviours? And how did we lose control of it? And how are we to age, archive and process ourselves online as we hit midlife and the digital tools change themselves too? With me to discuss this are two millennial journalists whose work and identity have very much been shaped by the online world. First up we have Marie Leconte, journalist and author, and last year published a fascinating read called Escape how a generation shaped, destroyed, and survived the internet. Secondly, we have Chris Stokel-Walker, one of the most prolific and busiest tech journalists out there, currently navigating the debates around the banning of TikTok. He's also the author of two books, YouTubers, How YouTube Shook Up TV and Created a New Generation of Stars, and TikTok Boom, China's Dynamite App and the Superpower Race for Social Media. Welcome to It's All Relative, Marie and Chris. Thank you for joining me. Marie, I wondered if we could start with you and you could just take us through how you grew up on the internet and why you think it's such a distinct experience. Uh, Sure. Well, I think to start with, I have to say that I grew up with a dad who was a massive, massive nerd Uh, because I was born in 91 and actually it would have been really easy for me, I think, to not quite be of the generation that grew up online. But I think, what was it, by 1998, I want to say, we had more computers than people in the house. Wow. Uh, Which is fair to say at the time was not quite common. But yeah, so, you know, I I have pictures of me at three playing video games and clicking on the mouse and stuff. Um, So again, yeah, for a start, computers in general were always part of my life. Mm. I suppose I started my first blog when I was 12. And it was just, you know, one of those really, really early blogging era type of blog of just talking about what I'd done that day, by which I mean, I was talking about what I did at school, which very boring. But anyway, so I kind of did that. And then I launched a music blog when I was 13, because I'm sure the world deserves to hear what I think about indie music, you know, I comma Marie comma 13. And then it didn't stop there at 15. I decided to launch a music website, which is obviously very different. So I'd actually commission writers and we'd review albums and gigs and stuff and then you know quite a lot happened after that but that was kind of the beginning I suppose and so I think what's interesting about it is that not everyone was online at the time by which I mean I had a best friend when we were about 12 13 and that friendship ended up ending as teenagers and I think that was partially if not mostly because she was not on the internet at all but you know that that was still very much a choice that you made I think to be online at that time Mm. in the mid 2000s and I remember her having a go at me saying you know you spend all that time on the computer and you've got all these friends on the computer like why can you not just be in real life which again I think if we'd grown up about 10 years later either that would not have happened or she would have been the weird one so I think a again it was very much a choice at the time to be very online but also what I mean by that is adults were not online in the same way even though obviously in the case of yeah my my dad was very online but my mum wasn't for example Um, and I think something I, I come back to a lot which is in the book so you'll probably remember it but so when I was 13 14 I used to go to Paris behind my parents backs uh, to go to gigs, big secret, the very stupid thing to do also in retrospect. Um, and I wrote about it on my blog. You know, my blog that had my first name and my hometown and my age was so obviously me and it was public. And I was like, da da da. So, you know, the other day I went to Paris, I went to see the Paddingtons and that's what it was like. And it didn't even occur to me for one moment that anyone from the real world could find out. Uh, which obviously, again, in retrospect, quite mad. And my parents did find out and I got grounded for a very, very long time. <laughs> so I think being online at the time, it felt 
felt like a a different space in general but b it kind of felt like a nearly quite secret space where if you were quite young you would make friends with other quite young quite weird people quite separate from both the adults and from the quote unquote the kind of normal people there was a sort of privacy to it even though it was a public space and a sort of naivety and a lack of awareness of that public space i've heard you describe it as like a sort of secret tree house that your generation kind of curated and created but then got invaded by others can you talk a little bit about that transition oh yes absolutely well i think you know this my highly unscientific thesis um, and it's a thing that, you know, lots of people, especially in the kind of early-ish internet, were people who, for whatever reason, were not very good at real life. And that's kind of why we escaped uh, somewhere else. You know, in my case, I was a very awkward kid. I was quite weird. I got bullied a lot when I was at school. You know, using the internet was very much not my plan A, but basically plan A was real life and, plan, you know, plan A was terrible. So I was like, well, fine. I guess I'll just live in my room and be on the computer and I'll be happy there. So I think it was kind of a community of people who, for whatever reason, were not happy with the real world. And so just Decided to again escape and create this separate world so that's why you did have that feeling of oh we're hiding from the adults and we're hiding from the normies and this is all tremendous because actually this is our world what happened is that over time everyone else joined us on the internet and by that i mean the kind of popular kids at school suddenly started having blogs and it was no longer like a thing only the weirdos did and everyone's parents and aunts and uncles and even grandparents <laughs> and my grandmother follows me on twitter now which is very weird everyone kind of joined us and i think a what that did is that I think they used to be the internet and the real world and they were kind of quite separate spaces they felt quite separate yeah. and they ended up blending but also I think over time the internet ended up getting the kind of sense of etiquette and the customs etc of the real world and I think this is going to make me sound slightly like an incel and I'm very sorry in advance <laughs> but writing the book I was talking to a friend who's a bit older than me and we tried to think we're like okay so when was the point when the internet stopped being our thing and became an everyone thing we, we couldn't exactly say when it happened but we landed on on the point at which stereotypically attractive people started becoming the most famous people online. Oh, interesting. That meant that internet had just become high school, had just become like the, the real world of actually the quite bland, really hot people, men and women, like the second they became, you know, influencers, I suppose, or like really famous bloggers. Would that be like the Kardashians and really Facebook took over the internet? Kardashians are pioneers in so many ways in popular culture. <laughs> so there's kind of that element, but there's also Facebook started as a college network, but effectively became a network for very, very attractive people that did very well on those social networking sites for obvious reasons. What date would you mark that as? Oh, that's a really good question. I'm not really sure. I would probably say late 2000s, maybe very early 2010s. So Facebook in itself was really interesting as well, because I think that was also the beginning of the end for the internet and the real world being different spaces, because by definition on Facebook, you would just add people you knew. Before that, for example, blogs, it kind of worked the other way, where you would have a blog, you would read people's blogs, you'd make friends through blogs, and then you'd talk on MSN Messenger, etc. And then if really that went tremendously well, well, you would end up meeting in person. Whereas Facebook, obviously that got flipped where suddenly you met people in real life and then from there you added them on Facebook. So the people who were popular in real life were nearly automatically popular on Facebook as a result. So I think that Facebook becoming popular was definitely the kind of beginning of the end, I think, for that era of the internet. Chris, let's bring you in here because I think it's worth us remembering and perhaps not reminiscing, but remembering the early years of YouTube because what Marie's talked about is very much the written form and interestingly how written form was reshaped with how people were writing on the internet but early youtubers were there early days doing some really disruptive things 
Yeah, I mean, mid 2000s was kind of when we started to move from the text and image-led web to a kind of more multimedia one. And, and we had this idea of vloggers for the first time who were, you know, as Marie says, like the nerds always claim these things first and we always kind of lay the ground. And I include myself in that as kind of like an absolute nerd on this sort of thing. Uh, but we, we lay the ground for then the more conventionally attractive mainstream people to come in and kind of ruin our fun. So that happened with YouTube as well. You know, we didn't have the word influencer. We didn't have the word creator. We just had blogger. And you know, there was a conference in New York in 2004 called VloggerCon, which was just literally these weird people who decided that they wanted to upload essentially home videos to the internet, uh, but they didn't have a platform for that. So then we started to see the rise of video platforms that then bequeathed the likes of Instagram and, and things like that and did become that chase for popularity and, and very much, I suppose, a mainstreaming of all of this stuff. And that is you know, the history of the internet right i'm in the final stages of writing a very brief book and it's an impossible book to do because you're trying to summarize mm -hmm. decades of history but a brief history of the internet essentially which is kind of like writ large what this story is of people who kind of didn't have a place in society trying to carve out a sort of identity a home for themselves then seeing you know commerce and capitalism ruin everything and and then the kind of arrival of celebrities <laughs> on top of that which makes it even worse familiar tale sub youth <laughs> cultures right the commercialization of it all when was the time when vlogging was not aware of its audience i mean there's a bunch of different landmark moments that you can think of with that you, you did have that naive approach to vlogging in the early days the perfect example of that is the very first video on youtube by you know one of the co-founders of youtube which is just the most socially awkward video that you'll ever see uh, someone standing in front of an elephant enclosure at the san diego zoo there's a few moments that you can kind of look at to to pinpoint where things start to change and they become more self-aware so yeah the, the obvious one i guess is lonely girl 15 which was deep cuts from the internet sort of 2006 where there was this quote-unquote vlogger who was doing intensely personal videos from her bedroom but then it turned out that actually she was a paid actress and all of this stuff was kind of quote-unquote structured reality in the same way that we had you know, Paris Hilton and her friends kind of doing stuff on The Simple Life and the Kardashians doing yeah. stuff afterwards and Towie going on after that so this is kind of you know one of those key moments where actually this this organic stuff becomes inorganic and then on top of that you then have the advent of kind of the first sponsored content the first adverts 2007-2008 you know the idea that Smosh, that was another sort of early YouTube creator that was really, really popular, could get paid for doing this sort of stuff. And that, I guess, changes the game, right? Because then you're going, I'm not doing this for myself and for self-improvement and self-expression. I'm doing this because I'm getting paid at the end of it. And we know that the digital native Gen Z generation, that's almost inherent, that's built in. What do you think the internet did to us in our evolution into adulthood as we collided with this virtual world? How did it affect us as a generation, do you think, Marie? That's a very good question. I worry that I could probably talk about it for the next two hours. But in my case, and I suspect for many other people like me, it taught me how to be a person and how to interact with the real world, right? I was not always really good at that growing up. The internet gave us a space to mess up, which was quite useful and especially the kind of older internet where it was more anonymous and like the platforms are not quite joined up in the way they are now so for example you didn't always have the same username everywhere etc so I think having been able to kind of mess up and start again was massively useful friendships is probably a big thing as well in that it's hard to talk about without sounding overly dramatic but, but it did kind of completely rewrite I think the ways in which we form
form friendship. And I was going to be stating the obvious for a bit, so apologies in advance. But normally, friends are people you meet, you know, at work, at university, or whatever. So you may have some things in common. You obviously you'll get along, etc. But you were quite limited in terms of how you met people. You didn't really go up to people in the street going hello, do you like this band? Would you like to be my best friend? Whereas, you know, suddenly I think the internet removed that so you could meet people who are anywhere in the world of any age, of, you know, any occupation, etc. And because you shared interests and maybe personality traits, etc., you could suddenly become friends. And, you know, which is a massive thing. Again, even looking at my hometown in France where I grew up, it's not even a massive city. It's about half a million people. But nearly all the friends I had were from blogs and not necessarily from school. And actually, even some friends I made at school, I made because we ended up following each other's blogs so it was not even a case of talking in the corridor (laughs) it was that we met on the internet and then decided to become friends the early days of the internet enabled you to do the two essential things of being young which is to mess up in private and to be obsessional about certain things basically teenage girl fandom created the internet along with you know cats what do you think about this whole notion of tech optimism there was a moment I feel like in maybe the 2010s with the Arab uprising Obama and older people joining Twitter in particular being really enthusiastic about what this spread of mass information and connectivity was going to do to politics, to the world, to us all. Take us back there. Yeah, I think we were naive back then. No, but I mean, it, it, it's the early stages of adoption of any technology where you think that it's got all the promises and all the potential, but you don't always think about how the bad actors can potentially use it in the same way. And we're kind of seeing, I guess, parallels of that in kind of the excitement around AI at the minute. And then those who have kind of gone through this rodeo once before saying, well, hang on, actually, you know, we need to think about the long-term ramifications of these things. Back in you know, 2010, 2011, the internet was a very different place it, it was still kind of pseudonymous in, in many ways although we were getting to that stage of kind of Facebook demanding a real name policy and you know, as Marie kind of talked about the idea of like these online worlds and offline worlds merging but there was huge promise I mean like you could start a revolution essentially through social media we had Coney 2012 where we all thought that we were going to end the issue of you know African warlords killing and maiming people simply by clicking a button What was Comey 2012? So Joseph Comey was uh, an African warlord that was essentially on the run. And um, there was uh, this kind of huge digital campaign to try and raise awareness of the fact that he was committing all of these terrible, terrible incidents. And uh, there was this kind of naive approach that we were somehow, by spreading words on social media of this sort of stuff, going to end up getting him arrested. So there was this whole Comey 2012 movement, which was like a trending hashtag on Twitter and things like that, where you clicked a petition and I think people thought directly by clicking on that, they were going to help arrest Joseph Coney, but he ended up being on the run for many more years. And that idea of clicktivism, mm-hmm. the idea that like you can, in the same way that you can kind of be a fan of a, a band or whatever and kind of identify with the community while actually not doing huge amounts of stuff in the real world that makes a difference has kind of been a really significant one. Um, so yeah, we kind of quickly learned, I suppose, that unfortunately there are kind of more wrinkles to this stuff than we first thought. I, I think we're through the looking glass now particularly with like Cambridge Analytica in that sort of post-world post-prism with the NSA which was the mass spying regime and the back doors that were introduced into lots of kind of popular services that we have on the internet nowadays so yeah very very different world in which we inhabit online nowadays and it's definitely hard for Gen Z to even understand that Marie you have a really interesting theory I think as to this whole notion of echo chambers and and that being the source of and the reason for why the internet is now bad. You've kind of flipped that argument. Could you sort of spell out how you think there's a slightly different dynamic at play? 
I basically completely disagree with the premise that the internet is bad because we're all stuck in eco chambers where we only ever talk to people who sound like us, who agree with us, etc. I think the problem is the complete opposite, which is that we are all together all the time stuck in the same spaces and is driving all of us insane. Like, for example, you know, I talked earlier about the fact that my grandmother follows me on Twitter, but, you know, so do several men I fancy and would quite like to date. And so do several former bosses, potential future bosses, etc. And suddenly I'm finding I have to be a version of myself that appeals to all of those people at the same time and does not offend any of those people at the same time which is an ideal and I think that that's the case for everyone else as well and that's not to say that people are inherently liars or phonies it's just that we're social beings you know as a species we're deeply social people and being social means adjusting who you are depending on who you're talking to which is I think the most normal thing in the world but social media prevents us from doing that and I think it is kind of driving all of us up the wall because even if you look at a wider level I think it's ruining politics because politics will always have in-groups and out-groups. In-groups need to be able to have discussions on any given debate, so be that left-right or any sort of, you know, political issue. You need to be able to talk to people you agree with on what you should be doing, what you should be doing next, etc., what you agree on or disagree on, without having potentially bad faith actors, or in any case, just people who disagree with you, being able to kind of listen in and watch all of that unfold in real time. Mm. It is not good for us to always be together. And I think that's actually behind a lot of the generational warfare of course millennials are annoying you know people in their 30s will always be annoying in many ways to people in their 60s and vice versa I find a lot of you know teenage stuff online incredibly annoying but that's normal that's because I'm an adult and if you're an adult seeing what 17 year olds talk about will always irritate you in the end so I think again I don't think our generations at the moment are uniquely divided it's more that we're being forced to spend an extremely extended family holiday together stuck in the same house Uh, and all of us are losing our minds Which leads me on to the fact that millennials are no longer young. We no longer own the internet in the same way that we once did in our youth. Chris, how do you think we've matured online? Because although we may not have gone through adolescence online with the same intensity as Gen Z, we've certainly entered adulthood online and we've moved from being bloggers, bloggers to brands and, you know, whole influencer culture, but also how LinkedIn and Instagram has shaped us and we've shaped those platforms. Could you talk a little bit about about how we've matured on the internet yeah particularly for people i guess you know of our age that all of us are here i'm a couple of years older than marie and we've known the pre-internet era and now are kind of deep into this and so we've kind of changed our approach to these things in a way that maybe those who like marie's grandmother don't know fully about the internet and can't fully appreciate it and those younger than us who have kind of never known anything other than this can't have that additional context so it seems to me like we are and again this is generalizing because this is certainly not the case if you look on twitter and see lots of people who are posting ridiculous stuff under their real names we are conscious of that idea that we're having to reflect uh, ourselves to multiple people from multiple different backgrounds as marie pointed out the idea of being at the dinner party with everybody that you've ever known is a really challenging issue i think this is so interesting and also i find a bit depressing the midlife millennial online with the millennial pause the millennial aesthetic now looking slightly outdated the millennial lingo being laughed at by Gen Zers. I mean, are we now at the embarrassment online? 
oh, we are. I'm really enjoying it. Um, <laughs> I'm quite fashion conscious. I like wearing interesting clothes. I care a lot about fashion, etc. And so I think up until the kind of pandemics, up until my late 20s, I could not see a sort of meaningful difference between the way I dressed and the way perhaps younger people dressed. Not to say I was kind of, you know, pretending I was 14 again. And then the pandemic happened. Those kind of two, three years were out of society and, you know, it came back out and I was like, oh my God, teenagers look really stupid. And it was such a funny thing where like, A, clearly all these trends, like new trends, entirely passed me by because they hang out on different platforms they probably got a lot of that stuff from tiktok which i am not on so a i was like okay i had no idea all these new things were trendy and that's really interesting that had never happened to me and b they look very stupid because the the fashion stuff at the moment is basically kind of mid 90s early 2000s mm. which i was there for the first time round. so obviously i find it weird me too but again, being a, I found that really liberating because I'm like, oh, it's happened now. I'm old. I'm no longer young. And I found that to be a weird relief because I think it's more daunting to spend the last few years of your 20s going, oh God, I can tell, you know, it's coming. And I do occasionally get, because so I'm 31 and the media, I think is not always good at young people. So I, I will occasionally get sort of like TV and radio requests. Chris, I'm sure you're the same. Being asked to explain what young people make of X or Y or Z. And I have to be like, I'm very sorry. And like, I drink pickpool now. I have no idea. <laughs> idea what 21 year olds make of anything i'm oddly enjoying that kind of passing of the baton and yeah generational shift chris we are increasingly becoming irrelevant to how these things work and i'm petrified of the day that that kind of happens i'm, I'm trying desperately to cling on by kind of like the how are you doing fellow kids person just kind of rocking up and trying to keep track of what people are saying because i think that digital culture is not really a thing anymore and it's kind of a reflection of our society and trying to keep track of that is important because what do you mean digital culture is not really a thing anymore it's society right there's no such thing as oh, digital culture yeah. it is culture okay. i guess and so even if we can't be active participants in it and you know i certainly on tiktok as a consumer rather than a, a creator i still think that it's important that we're on it in order to kind of try and see what society is nowadays yeah. from fashion to kind of like what the concerns are to kind of the the subcultures that bubble up that could become the next big thing because this is our lived life now and we're going to be doing this for, for decades to come and i kind of worry that i become my parents generation where i just switch off entirely and you become disconnected in many ways from that because of the integral nature of the internet and i kind of look at like what happens if you don't have a smartphone nowadays and you're caught in this digital divide and worry that if we don't try and kind of keep some distant sense of the drumbeat of what's going on online then we could very easily spin off into our kind of our own solar system that is totally removed from what's going on and not just remove, like redundant, not just culturally, but like economically. A lot of the stuff that we pioneered as a generation, whether we're talking about social media managers or an online journalistic career, perhaps will not be available to us in five to 10 years time with evolution of AI. And we're too young to give up on that stuff, right? We can't I cannot retire afford to, right. So we're gonna have to work for another 40 years. So it's not just a cultural imperative to stay relevant and be in touch with perhaps what your kids and your nephews and nieces are into but it's also an economic need to stay agile and connected marie what do you think about that i cheat slightly i suppose because i mostly write about politics so if anything my trade is explaining old people to young people yeah um so it's, yeah it's still seen as the bright young whiz purely because i know how to use spotify in quite a lot of circles <laughs> i mean i exaggerate slightly but no that's a really good question i'm going to be entirely honest here and say so i never really thought about it and i think i'm probably just going to be left behind and i'm sort of okay with that so you know i'm, I'm not on tiktok for example 
example, I don't really post Instagram stories because when I got on Instagram, it was just posts and actually stories annoy me, etc. So I worry I will be an internet reactionary at some point quite soon, although it was quite a striking realisation. So when it looked briefly like Twitter might actually go down mm. for good. And lots of people were like, okay, well, we're going to flee to Mastodon, we're going to flee to other places. And I kind of thought, you know what, I'll let the tide take me. This is it. You know, this was my home and I'm in no great rush to find somewhere else, etc. So the book I wrote talked about the end of an era in the early mid 2000s, etc. And I wonder if we're not coming to the end of the next one where actually I will be, you know, the slightly weird person who's like, I can send emails, I can receive emails, that's sort of where I'm at. And whatever new platforms start existing, I will not really be a part of. Mm. But again, I don't know why I'm being pro-aging and pro-becoming a relevant person on this panel, <laughs> but... And I'm finding it, again, quite freeing because I remember the years where, you know, it was MSN and MySpace and blogs and obviously Facebook and Instagram and Twitter and etc. And it was quite exhausting to kind of have to shape your persona and your usage of all these different apps all the time and trying to remain relevant and trying to see how everything worked, etc. So yes, I'm leaving all that behind. I weirdly don't find that daunting and I just find quite freeing as a prospect. I think a lot of the millennials emerged out of the pandemic feeling very old and exhausted. I see a lot of creators that really were trailblazers on the sort of multi-hyphenate creator economy now just going, I don't want a podcast anymore. I don't want to have to, you know, get a TikTok account. I don't want to have to do all this because I'm exhausted because I've turned my life into content and I can't do it anymore because I've hit my mid-30s. Chris, do you think there's danger in that or do you think actually it's just a natural flow? as we enter the slow lane of life. There's an argument that there's kind of a Moore's Law type thing going on here with ageing, isn't there, right? Where we've seen it all, like Marie has in her book, you know, elements of like coming across like terrible things on the internet at such a young age that like you would never experience over 80 years of life in a, in a sort of pre-digital age. And so I think there's kind of a, a potential there of we are certainly not ageing faster in, in the sense of kind of our bodies because we're not doing as much manual labour anymore, but we are ageing faster in terms of like our, our life experience that kind of classic meme of life comes at you fast is very pertinent here. It kind of gets to that point of how we've matured on the internet and how things have changed. I think that we can become quite jaded about this because we see how these things have evolved and we therefore need to sometimes take a break. It's tiring being a brand, right? And, and everybody is expected to be a brand, even if you're not doing this professionally. Mm. You're presenting a polished version of yourself that isn't necessarily real. The fact that you spend so much time curating things from like editing your Instagram photos to thinking about your Spotify playlists like all of these are signals to the world of who you are and we always want to get it right there's so much more stuff to do nowadays uh, just to kind of live Turning to a more optimistic note, what parts of the internet do you feel that we still have colonised and own? What parts of the internet do you feel optimistic about? I still love Tumblr, yeah. as if it were day one. I think Tumblr is a fascinating corner of the internet. I've been on it, weirdly, for longer than I've been on Facebook. So I'm a proper sort of like Tumblr elder. And it's not really changed. And it's really funny as well, because I think successive companies have tried to monetize it and tried to turn it into more of a product and a more of a polished thing. And for whatever reason, it just never took, it, it never happened. So 
So Tumblr is still kind of a corner of the niche weird internet. So recently, obviously, there was the Ides of March, which is not by any means, you know, some sort of major festival anywhere. Somehow this year, for reasons I could not explain to you, because I can't explain them to myself, the Ides of March became a massive thing this year, and it became this festival. So people posted, we wished each other happy Ides of March. There were lots of Caesar getting stabbed memes, etc. For no reason, apart from it was incredibly funny. There's that sense of still, like, completely baffling community there, where no one really makes money, I think, from being on Tumblr. No one gets the right kind of fame. Yeah. All just quite weird people making weird jokes, and actually that's really delightful, and it makes me really happy that, again, against all odds, that's still there. It's still got that graffiti element, hasn't it? The early internet, and certainly memes back in the day really exemplified. Chris, what, what about you? There's two sort of, like, levels of the internet, right? There's, like, the mainstream which is we're all expected to kind of like perfectly preen ourselves for Instagram and to be on TikTok and stuff. But yet you dig below the surface that interesting, almost like web 1.0, angel fire, weird hobbyist website. You can have a subculture that you're completely passionate about that you can just share with people. And because of the way the algorithms present content to us nowadays, you can exist and be quite popular in that community and build up those strong connections while also kind of being relatively unmolested by the rest of the world. So for instance, I'm very, very sad and sometimes I will watch theme park vloggers because I find them kind of endlessly fascinating. I'm not that interested in theme parks, but they go to theme parks and they film themselves and then I get interested and invest in their lives. And so I now watch the home improvement vlogs of theme park vloggers. There's something still kind of wonderful about the internet yeah. because despite the fact that we're all kind of being dragged on this hamster wheel, to produce content that serves the mainstream acceptance of what we like, you can still find a sort of quiet corner of the internet with like-minded people and exchange your hobbies and also as a passive consumer politely listen in on that sort of stuff. Yeah, that sort of subterranean internet. I did a YouTube course a couple of years ago with Ali Abdal's team and one of the interesting things was that the participants on that course range from window cleaners in Canada who just did videos and vlogs on window cleaning to a guy whose dad was a stand-up comedian in Blackpool and he was just shooting his dad on tour and I just thought of such an amazing range of people just trying to display their passions their interests their causes their views on things Chris I just want you to if you can having talked about this a lot this week I think we probably should touch upon it could you just explain why you think the situation around TikTok ban is reaching new heights now and what the likely outcome would be yeah oh god um <laughs> can you do that in about you know 30 seconds please yeah, yeah so for the first time essentially in the history of the internet we have a platform that is ubiquitous across the world that is based outside of a, a small parcel of land in the west coast of the united states called silicon valley pretty much everything from, from the very very first elements of the internet in the 1960s and darpanet which was kind of you know out of the, the u.s defense budget the creation of the internet was essentially a u.s defense thing and was located in a triangle of universities on the west coast of the u.s everything that we do everything that we think of everything that we read everything that we watch has kind of been refracted through this very sort of libertarian Silicon Valley West Coast US lens for the entirety of the internet. 
And for the first time ever, we have a global platform that is not. It sucks that it is a platform that is strongly linked to China, because if it was anywhere else in the world, then we would kind of be celebrating it. But because of that China connection, because China is a terrible country that ethnically cleanses large parts of its uh, society and, and cracks down and censors the rest of those people, we see it as an issue. The reason I think why TikTok is kind of reaching ahead at the minute is because we have this geopolitical conflict. Uh, China is seen as being on the wrong side of history for, for multiple different reasons and for right or wrong and I happen to think largely for wrong as someone who has kind of been trying to find evidence of nefarious connections between China the state and TikTok the company and the platform we are saying that TikTok is China and that uh, we can hit back at China and kind of use it as a, an economic sanctions tool almost to uh, kind of punish China. And obviously it comes off the back of China flying a, a literal spy balloon over North America, which doesn't help matters at all. <laughs> yeah, so this is this is interesting though, because you know, 150 million Americans, 125 plus million Europeans, a billion people worldwide use this for self-expression. We've talked a lot about generations over the course of this podcast, and obviously it's something that you focus on an awful lot. This is kind of the equivalent of cutting off MySpace in 2003. This is the equivalent of cutting off Facebook in 2009. This is the equivalent of cutting off YouTube right at its peak. If we get rid of this, then we are stopping a whole generation of people who use this platform innately and see it as their home from expressing themselves. You know, Elon Musk talks about Twitter being the online public square and a really important place uh, to converse. These platforms are yeah. public squares. Yeah. And they have a really vital role in our society. And if you drag geopolitics into this with a complete absence of evidence around the kind of issues around TikTok, uh, people say it's a national security risk, but nobody's yet shown any evidence of that, then we get into a very dangerous place and we get into kind of a, ironically, quite a Chinese or a Russian world where we kind of produce a splinter net, a parallel internet, where some things are not allowed because we, we don't like where they come from. Okay, and one answer, do you think it will be banned or not? Uh, yes, temporarily, they'll do a legal challenge. They did last time. Interesting. Let's briefly reflect and finish on Gen Z and the way that they're different and perhaps any advice you would give Gen Z having gone through the early years of the internet and come out the other side. Marie, when you encounter a Gen Z online or perhaps in real life, what are the noticeable differences apart from aesthetics and platforms maybe? Oh, God, that's a really good question. They use, you know, for the most part, the kind of same platforms that we do, although I will say there are probably fewer Gen Zers on Twitter. But on Instagram, for example, I remember talking to a friend a few months ago, we were at drinks, you know, all of us in our kind of early 30s. And she said, sort of horrified that she'd heard from her niece or something that apparently the cool thing to do on Instagram is to only ever have a few posts up on the grid. So you're not meant to keep all your pictures, you'll post something. And so I think it's at most sort of nine pictures on the grid, ideally just three or four. And you kind of delete whereas I think I've got over 2,000 there and all of us were like oh god like we had no idea that was a thing god like we've become so uncool there are a few things like that but weirdly I think probably Gen Z people are more likely to be able to spot who the millennials are online as opposed to the other way around because I'm sure they are kind of like things they do or lingo which I can't really identify but they can and in terms of advice I think they've got it covered don't they because they've watched us all make mistakes and act stupidly <laughs> and kind of suffer consequences for our, from our actions so I think a lot of what they do is more transient online it'll be anonymous or it'll be sort of you know behind locked accounts etc messages that auto delete etc so it's not because I think the main advice otherwise would have been be careful what you post because you'd be surprised what may come back to 
invite you in the arse, you know, years down the line. But actually, again, I think we as a generation have shown that to be a problem to such an extent. They don't need to be told, really. So I think Damn. I think they're doing fine. I think probably a slightly broader problem. It's probably quite hypocritical of me to say that. But I remember talking to someone for the book and she was really astute because she said the difference between bloggers and influencers is that bloggers, we went into the world and we lived our lives and we did stupid things and fun things, etc. And then we got home on the computer and we wrote about them. Whereas influencers do a lot of stuff for the internet. And actually that's a completely different relationship. So I'd probably just say, you know, don't forget to live. Living's quite good. <laughs> Love that. I've got a Gen Z employee and one of the things that she does on Twitter, she doesn't have a Twitter account attached to her real name. She has what she calls a Karen Twitter account where she just complains... <laughs> at brands and services, mostly train lines, for bad service and compensation. So it's interesting how these kids are mixing up their use and perhaps misuse of platforms. Chris, what about you? Don't really have anything to actually advise them. I did at one point uh, and still do want to kind of write a book about how we need to overhaul our education system to account for the fact that we now live our lives online and so many of us are now creators. Because I've spoken to so many YouTubers and others who become really, really popular, really, really famous and have no idea about how to do the stuff that comes with that. The the idea of like, how do I fill in a tax form? You know, one creator that I spoke to said that they had to ask their grand how to do this uh, because they just literally didn't know. And so, you know, I think, that's kind of you know the stuff that is the only thing I can advise them on is like think about like what the the kind of infrastructural elements the kind of business elements the kind of taxi stuff around all of what you're doing is if you are wanting to get into this kind of career of, of being online um the, the title of the book was going to be the kids are all right though and that's kind of like what I yeah. think is the truth the kids are all right they know far more than we do about this stuff because it's an eight to them so with that, I'd just like to thank you both. That's been a really fascinating discussion. I hope it hasn't made you feel too old, but actually feel rather nostalgic for the early years of the internet. So thank you, Marie and Chris. Do connect with them both on Twitter. And I'll also put a link to their fabulous books in the show notes. Thank you so much for listening to It's All Relative. You can also connect with me on LinkedIn, Twitter, TikTok and Instagram at Eliza Philby. And why not subscribe to my weekly newsletter to hear more from me about how we are changing as consumers workers and assistants oh and do rate us on apple reviews it helps me keep this podcast going